Now, I hope you'll make plans to be with, uh, here with us on the 18th. Uh, Julia uh, Eastwood, a gifted artist in our church, has been working on a new logo for Church of the Lamb, which we're really excited about, and we'll show you on that Sunday. Uh, Julie, Matthew, Kirkpatrick, and staff have been working on a new website that we're going to launch on that day. The parish council has been talking and praying uh, about our ongoing hopes for a long-term home for Lamb, and we're going to be talking about that and asking you to participate in our prayers for that in specific ways. And most important, we're going to provide space in our service that Sunday for everyone, for all of us to share gratitude to God for things that he's done in our lives in the past year. And even if you're joining us by Zoom, we want you to participate in this by sending uh, this to the parish admin email address, sharing your thanksgivings, and we'll read those aloud too. God has been faithful to our church in the last year in some pretty incredible ways. And we trust that he's going to continue to be faithful to us. And so we want to join together in this Thanksgiving. But, you know, Andrew um, White said this last week in his sermon to us that it's a unique and difficult year to know how to express genuine thanks. Whether you know it or not, whether you've been affected personally in deep ways, and we're living in a year of lament, of what the Bible would call lament. I'm going to illustrate this in a couple of ways just to start off. So one story that's not necessarily related to COVID-19. There's a couple at Church of the Incarnation, our mother church that planted us, named Nick and Karen Kozell. Just a couple of months ago, Karen was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And as of that, this past week, she now has hospice care in her home. Karen is an amazing woman of God, and Nick and Karen are walking through this in some of the bravest and most joyful ways possible. But this was not expected at all. There's a deep lament going on in this. It is an untimely moment. It is not natural that this is happening. And so there's grief, there's lament in this for the Cozells. A situation that is specifically related to COVID. So in February, our church sent a group of three people, myself, John Hay, Dan Velker, to Uganda to begin trying to establish a partnership with the Diocese of Lango in Uganda. While we're there, we also met with a family that John has been working with since the early 90s in Uganda, Peter and Catherine. Can you say their last name for me, John? Tukai. John taught Catherine in the early 90s. Catherine came from a tribal family. She had experienced deep tragedy in her own life. John brought his skills in Christian education to Uganda, taught a group of people, and now, years later, Catherine has started two schools training young women just like her where they can come and live and be equipped in teaching others education and becoming educators. Her school has been recognized by the government as one of the, the best schools in the country for doing this work. Because Uganda has such a fragile health system, they've needed to react even more strong than our country in reaction to COVID. What that's meant is that the school has been shut down and students were no longer paying tuition. Catherine had no income. For, the, for a time, the renter of the school property allowed Catherine not to pay the rent. But within the last month, required all the rent to be due at once. 
Catherine called on people to help in paying this rent. And there were people, our church has helped, John and Nancy have helped. There were people who allowed them to get caught up at the rent with the rent. As soon as they were caught up in rent, the landlord sent another letter saying that the rent amount is going up. By how much, John? Two to three times higher than it was before. Catherine had no option except to let go of the school. And letting go of that property also meant that the buildings that they built on the property had to be completely disassembled, torn down. So all of the dreams that they poured into this place, the blood, sweat, and tears, literally the prayers, had to be completely disassembled. This is a season of lament in all kinds of ways. Even if if it hasn't touched your life directly, we look around in our country at the political turmoil, the division, and we see that this is a time of sadness, of lament. Now, at the same time, it's glorious, right? We're sitting in the midst of God's creation, majestic creation, and we give thanks for this. And this is exactly what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about thanksgiving and seasons of lament. And here's the point I want to make. Thanksgiving and lament are part of a truly human life, and they're brought together in Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving and lament are part of a truly human life, and these are brought together in the person of Jesus Christ. So what is lament? What does it mean to lament? Lament is sadness and grief over the brokenness in the world and in our lives. There's an entire book of the Bible shaped around this theme, the Old Testament book of Lamentations. Lamentations grows out of the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was charged with a thankless job. If there were like a, a dirty jobs video, uh, you know, in his day, Jeremiah would have been on it. He was to prophesy to the nation of Judah that unless they turned from their path, they would be defeated by the nation of Babylon and dragged into exile because of their sin against God. Now, Jeremiah, there was no side on the political spectrum of his day that was appreciating what he was saying. No one listened to him. And by the time Jeremiah's prophecies came to pass, there were lots of people who could have been blamed for the disaster. There were the kings, the politicians who led the people in injustice and idolatry and caused the nation to fracture from the inside out. But there were also the priests and the prophets. The priests and the prophets didn't want to bring bad news like Jeremiah, so they falsely assured the people that everything was going to be okay. Nothing to worry about. But in Lamentations, the disaster has already come, and who's to blame doesn't really matter nearly as much as something else. What matters the most is the simple fact that everyone is surrounded by the same chaos. Everyone is surrounded by the same death and tragedy. So Jeremiah doesn't at this point go on a diatribe of I told you so's. Instead, he leads in the collective grief. My eyes fail because of tears, he says. My spirit is deeply troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the daughter of my people. 
So the people that he was earlier accusing of sin, he now claims as, these are my people and I'm weeping with them because of what's happened. You see how the change occurs. At this point, there's no longer any reason to go on accusing people. It's lament. This is the posture. He goes so far as to say, my soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Now, Lamentations testifies to how dark life can become, even for a person who trusts deeply in God. People sometimes will say today that faith is a crutch for those who can't handle the difficulty of life. But listen, Jeremiah testifies to the fact that even faith doesn't always make life easier or bright. Lament, though is the appropriate response to the way that brokenness touches our lives. And Jesus, too, laments. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. In John chapter 11, his friend Lazarus has died, and he sees the grief of Lazarus' sister Mary, so he weeps. The incarnate God weeps with those who weep. Isn't this amazing? If you base it on this, lament is far from being sub-Christian or sub-spiritual. In fact, if Jesus is the God-man, fully human and fully divine, then lament is the most human and the most divine thing to do in the face of sadness. For a lot of Christians, when things seem especially chaotic in the world, we begin to talk about the return of Christ. We go to the final book of the Bible, Revelation, and we wonder, is the end coming quickly? And in many ways, this is right. We should long for Christ to return quickly, and we should pray in this direction. So at the end of Revelation, we're given one of the, mo- the shortest and most profound prayers that we can pray as Christians. Come, Lord Jesus. But what we easily forget about Revelation is the lament that frames this prayer. So lament is one of the postures of God's people when the world is in chaos. Listen to Revelation 6.10. The martyrs cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Phrases like, how long? And why, O Lord? These make up the biblical language of lament. Now remember the psalm that we just read together. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Lament is part of being human in the world as it is now, but it doesn't speak to all that it means to be human. In the Bible, lament doesn't exist on its own. Even in the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah's darkness gives way to a light hope. So he says, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And Jesus, too, at the tomb of Lazarus, makes the same move that Jeremiah makes, from lament to hope. In raising Lazarus, Jesus foreshadows his own conquering of death and the hope of the resurrection for everyone who follows him. 
But in between the lament and the act of hope, Jesus does something. This is crucial point. In order to prove that Jesus isn't pulling a rabbit out of a hat with the raising of Lazarus, in order to show he's not acting on his own, he does something else first. He prays. And listen to what he says. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people who are standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And then he proceeds to call Lazarus out of death. What Jesus does in this scene is he brings together two seemingly opposed acts, lament and thanksgiving. Jesus shows that thanksgiving is the bridge between lament and hope. So the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, which Jed read to us, that we're to give thanks in all circumstances. And when he writes all circumstances, Paul is essentially saying, give thanks even in circumstances that call for lament. What is Paul not saying here? He's not saying, don't lament. He's not saying, give thanks as if nothing is really wrong in the first place, as if the calling on the life of the Cozels and on Catherine and Peter is just to give thanks and not to grieve over the brokenness that has come into their lives. If Jesus is fully man and fully God, then learning to lament for us, learning to weep with those who weep is part of becoming like Jesus. And to give thanks without lament when we see the brokenness afflicting the world, that's a pie-in-the-sky kind of religion. It doesn't draw near to the heart of God that longs to bring healing to the brokenness of the world. But on the, at the same time, if we lament without thanksgiving, we live in despair. Did you hear what the uh, people said when Jesus uh, was grieving? There were some who said that Jesus must have loved Lazarus so much. But there were others who said, couldn't he have just healed him? <laughs> Those are the people who haven't learned to lament. They're cynics. But at the same time, if we lament without thanksgiving, we live a life of despair. We become the worst kind of cynics. We shut our eyes to the beauty and wonder of the world and of God. And so thanksgiving is to be the bridge between lament and hope. So, as we close. How do we give thanks in seasons of lament? What does it look like for us to do this in our lives? What does it look like for the Cozels, for Catherine and Peter, for us in the turmoil that surrounds us to give thanks? Back to what I said at the beginning, thanksgiving and lament are part of a truly human life, and they're brought together in Jesus Christ. Now remember that the symbol Jesus gave us to remember him by is the Eucharist coming to this table, his body, his blood. And we call it Eucharist because it's a meal of thanksgiving, and that's what the word Eucharist means, thanksgiving. Now, one of the earliest Christian writings outside the Bible is called the Didache. Can you say that? Everybody say it, Didache. All right. And here's what is said in the Didache. Goodness. 
They spoke in King James English then, so I'm reading it in King James English. That's a joke. It was Greek, but it's translated in King James English. Thou, Lord Almighty, didst give food and drink to men for their enjoyment, that they might give thanks to thee. But us hast thou blessed with spiritual food and drink and eternal light through thy child. Eucharist is a meal of thanksgiving. And what does Jesus call his people to do in this meal? As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And this, more than anything else, is how Christians give thanks in seasons of lament. We remember. We remember who God is, who Jesus Christ is, and who the Holy Spirit is who's been given to us as a deposit of our inheritance in Christ. Our faith as Christians is not something we've imagined or made up as a crutch so to make it easier for us to get through life. It does not necessarily make life easier, and in some ways it makes life even harder because we feel the brokenness so much more. It's not supposed to be this way. Our faith is a revelation of God himself. He has acted in the world in creation, in the beauty of the world. He's acted in the world in the redeeming life of Jesus. He's acted in our lives, in yours and in mine, through forgiveness, through love, and through hope. And so as Paul reminds people at the end of his letter in 1 Thessalonians, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. And by that he means everything he's promised to you, he will give you. He will be faithful to his promises to you. So this is what we're to remember about Christ and all your genuine reasons for lament and all the brokenness that touches your life and all the sadness around you and all the ways that you long for God to hear your prayers and answer them. He who calls you is faithful. He hears your prayers, and he will surely be faithful to you to the very end. So all of us are touched by the brokenness of things right now. We're surrounded by chaos, by conflict, by people arguing about sides, which way to do things, about who's right and who's wrong, who to vote for, and who's going to make things right. But in Jesus, we find the ability to lament this brokenness, a brokenness that honestly we and our society are unable to fix. We don't have it. But we also find in Jesus the ability to give thanks. Because in Jesus' death for sin and in his resurrection, grief becomes shot through by the hope of joy. So to become like Christ as a Christian is to live at the same time in lament and in thanksgiving. And it's to move toward the hope of all things being made right. So all of us, despite real reasons for lament, frustration, we also have reasons to give thanks. And so as our church moves toward October 18th, I want to invite you, I want to ask you, and please, I want to beg you, think about the ways in your life that you really need to lament. And do that with God. Do that with people who are close to you. But at the same time, begin thinking now and begin acting on the ways that you need to give thanks. 
Move out of places of despair in your life and move into places of faith and hope and love, trusting that God is faithful to you. He's not going to leave things the way, the way they are. He's not going to leave your life the way it is. He is faithful. Surely he will do it. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.